0: Hey, Emmanuel, it's great to be with you today, to spend some time with you in the Sermon on the Mount, one of uh, my favorite parts of Scripture. And today we're continuing on uh, from where Kyle left off previously, looking at the topic of salt and light. One of the more tragic things that I've read recently was in the writings of 19th century poet A.C. Swinburne. Swinburne is in no way a Christian, to be confused with a Christian, but he was talking about Christian, and in one of his poems he wrote this. He said, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has become grey from your breath. You have conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has become grey from your breath. Uh, you may notice that's a fairly racially perceptive statement made about 100 years ago about Jesus as a pale Galilean, but I'm not going to get into that because that's an entirely different topic. But the part that struck me was that he talked about the fact as a non-believer that Jesus had conquered, and yet the result, the outcome of that conquering was the world had become a greater place. That the lives of Christians and the people he knew that were living for Christ made everything pale, gray, obscured. It's a curious and a concerning thought. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the head of the church. Colossians tells us that everything was made by him and for him. Everything was created. Everything that you have ever righteously enjoyed or loved or given you a sense of vibrancy and life comes through Jesus. Every great meal you've ever eaten and was wowed by, every creative and artistic thing you've ever experienced, every sunrise, every athletic feat, every recreation that you love, everything that seems to give you joy comes through him. Remember a number of years ago, my middle son won a curling competition he was in, and I was so excited for him. I relived it for a few days, thinking of the last few few. Uh, rocks that got thrown in that curling competition, and the joy that that gave me. Joy that comes from God. I love cinnamon buns. I love them when they come right out of the oven. And you know, you've had them. I hope you've had them. If you haven't, your life is impoverished. You've had these cinnamon buns. They come out, they're tender, and they're sweet, and you put them in your mouth, and they just melt in your mouth, and you think, this is so great. In fact, it kind of pops out of you. You can't quite stop it, and you say, oh my God. But it's not swearing. It's actually praise. Like literally, God, you let me have this. You made this. You created this for me. So how in that kind of a world does anybody end up looking at Jesus and the followers of Jesus, and they say that Jesus made the world gray? How does that happen? So obviously, When we're thinking about Jesus, there's a lot of great things, but there's also not-so-pleasant interactions because Jesus lived a life that made a difference. Everywhere he went, he left a mark. Everything that he touched was different. Every life he intersected was changed. Society as a whole was transformed by Jesus and was never the same. It's not the same because he came to earth. Now, obviously, not everybody liked it, we know that because the crucifixion is a pretty clear indicator of that reality. But whatever else is true, whatever else we might think, Jesus' life and path were not like a cold, wet, rainy day. It wasn't bland, it wasn't boring, it wasn't tasteless and tedious. It called for a response. And when we read the Beatitudes that Kyle talked about just recently, blessing statements at the beginning of the sermon of the mount about what a christian is like sometimes we come to very wrong conclusions we review them and we start looking well blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness blessed are the merciful blessed are the pure in heart blessed are the peacemakers blessed are the persecuted And we get this idea that Christians should be nice, mild, gentle, uninteresting, uninspiring kind of people. We're sort of the human version of a nap. We're kind of like living, breathing metaphors for a tranquilizer. And we go through life never making a ripple. And that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount or in the Beatitudes as he describes a follower of Jesus Christ. So his words in verses 13 to 16 are our focus today. And Jesus goes on from these Beatitudes describing the character to talk about the influence. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not a super complicated passage. Not a super complicated idea. But in Greek, it's very, very emphatic. You are the salt of of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you don't need seminary education for that to be true. You don't need 10 years of experience to get to the level where that's accepted. You don't need a certification permit before you can install this in your life. He says this is what you are if you're a follower of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world it's who followers of Jesus are in fact he goes on and he says and if you're not you're wasting all our time if you're not your life is kind of worthless and if people look at our lives and their conclusion is that Jesus is somehow gray or tasteless we're not living the life we should be living so Jesus in this passage is using two very common illustrations, things that were part of everyday life as metaphors for living of the kind of influence we have. And there's an assumption behind them. When he says the world needs salt and light, it means that the world needs an influence upon it. Salt did two primary things in the ancient world. One, it added flavor, but that's not really the main idea here. The main idea for the ancient world was that the primary purpose of salt was to preserve. You take the salt, you rub it into the meat, and you have to do that, otherwise the meat putrefies. So it wasn't flavor because the meat that they had had plenty of salt already. It didn't need any more. The idea is kind of disgusting. Putrefied meat. And I use that word intentionally because it literally rots. It goes bad. And if you've ever been near a dead animal that's putrefied, you don't forget it. It's a smell that sticks with you. It's one of those things that gets in your sinuses. Weeks later, you're sniffing your and thinking, I think that smells to you. I just can't get rid of that. And Jesus is saying, left to itself, our culture and our society will rot. In a similar way, he says, you're the light of the world. We need light because the culture is dark. And if you've ever been in true darkness, which I think probably all of us have, you know it's kind of disorienting. It's a thing that we don't like too much. It's why we carry flashlights when we go somewhere. It's why we turn on the light when we walk into a house. When I was seven years old, or somewhere around seven years old, I was living in Montreal, and the power had gone out. We were at a neighbor's, a couple houses down from us, and they had a fire outside. It was all great. My mother says to me, hey, you need to go get ready for bed. So go on home. Now, don't freak out. This was a whole different era. We were allowed to do that with kids. Anyway, so I went home, went into the house, which was dark, pitch black, went into my room, opened the closet to get my pajamas, and something jumped out at me and terrified me. And I say terrified, I mean I don't think I stopped shaking for like three days. If I think about it today, it still bothers me. Turns out it was one of my nasty, nasty brothers who thought it would be funny to run home, put on a bathrobe jump out of the closet at me when I opened the door. Not very nice, not very sweet as a brother. It's what brothers do. It's what he did. But it still makes me nervous now, when I go into a dark place and I'm opening doors, I still have this sort of residual nervousness about darkness. Darkness is part of what's true in our world. And I realize this isn't our favorite thought. So we look at this passage and we think, okay, salt and light. Salt is stopping putrefaction of meat. Light has to shine into darkness, and the impression, the intent, is that our world is not getting better on its own. We'd like to think it does, but it's not. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about a period around the turn of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, And he wrote, it's pathetic to read about the prognostications of so-called thinkers, poets and philosophers and leaders who believe that wars were going to be abolished, diseases cured, suffering eradicated. The whole world was going to be a paradise. Obviously not true. It's an era that if it ever happened, we somehow missed. I think the two world wars had something to do with saying that's probably not real. It's probably not going to happen. It's not a lot different today. I hope you look at the world around you and realize it's not getting better on its own, whether you're talking about genocide in northern Myanmar, now genocide occurring in Ethiopia as well, whether it's more displaced refugees in the world today than there has ever been in the history of the world, whether there are over a million people in Chinese re-education centers, not to mention COVID, U.S. elections. It's pretty clear salt and light are still needed. And that's without ever discussing the moral, ethical issues of our own country. Salt and light are needed. And Jesus says, in that world, in this world, in our world, we're to be salt, rubbed into the meat, keep it from rotting. We're to be light, shining in the darkness, to show the way to go. It's needed. It's... Good news, thankfully, that God in his common grace has provided other means beyond just Christians to make a difference in the world, whether it's governments or whatever. But the Christian responsibility that comes from this is huge. It's massive. Don Carson writes in his commentary on it, he says, Heirs of the kingdom, living out the norms of the kingdom, constitute the witness to the kingdom. It's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. We're to live a different way. We're to be countercultural. We're supposed to stand out, be salt and light. And it's not focused on us, on what we want or don't want, what we feel like, what our opinion is. It makes a difference for society, for everybody around us. So if we fail to be salt, we fail to be light in our world today, then we are failing the world that we are called to serve. If we don't live that life, we fail our neighbors, we fail our coworkers, we fail our friends, we fail our family. If we're not salt and light. In fact, strong enough, an idea that Jesus goes on and says if you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing. Now, technically speaking, of course, you can't lose saltiness. Sodium chloride is a super stable. Thing, it doesn't lose it. But in Jesus' time, that salt was mixed with impurities, uh, different kinds of things, and the salt could get washed out of it, so you're left with nothing than uh, more than kind of a white dust that they sometimes could use on a path. And he says you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, that was literally true. Jesus goes on about the light, and he says, there's no point turning on your lamp if you plan on covering it. You're meant to be like a city on a hill that you can see, that helps you find the way, that helps you find home, in a sense, when you're out in a dark place and you need to find it. It's like when you're driving over the Hala, which I've done way too many times, in the night, and it's a dark, it's a cold, it's a snowy kind of night, and you're trying to get to Kamloops, but it's pretty late, and you just are thinking, if I just get to that hotel, get to bed, that would be great, and you turn that last kind of corner on the Hala that you start to angle down, and you can see Kamloops, And the lights of it shining there in front of you. And it's kind of like you're getting home. You're getting here finally. And Jesus says, we're meant to be that. But if you just hide the light, there's not much point. In the history of the church, we've often been washed out salt. In the history of the church, we've often been light that got hidden instead of shown. In fact, there's repeated times in church history where at least groups within the church have withdrawn into themselves, into isolated communities. Technically, they were called, the most extreme of that at least, were called monastics. They would live as hermits. Eventually, they began living in monasteries. In some cases, they were in caves. In other cases, they lived their whole life on top of old Roman columns and would be there for years in order to stay away from the putrefying nature of the world around them. It's interesting, as Jesus is writing this passage, that he's somewhere close to the Sea of Galilee, and that's not too far from the Dead Sea. For those of you who know your geography, maybe you've ever been to Israel, the Dead Sea is super saturated with salt, so you can go and just lie in it, and you'll just float. You can't really actually not float. You have no choice. So it's got all this salt in it, but not far from the Dead Sea, just on the hills beside it. was one of the earliest of these communities called the Essenes who withdrew from the society around them and lived in the caves. They're the community that wrote what we know as as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were very famous, helped get all kinds of manuscripts of the Bible and other things. They called themselves the Sons of Light. So you've got the Dead Sea with a community living beside it, withdrawing from community, living in caves, calling them the Sons of Light. And Jesus comes along and says, look, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And maybe he chose those metaphors because the people there understood exactly what he was saying, the people who lived around there. You don't show the way if you withdraw into the darkness of caves. You don't stop meat from rotting if the salt isn't actually rubbed into the meat. It has to contact, it has to make a difference. Helmut Tilica wrote, salt and light have one thing in common. They give and they expend themselves. They are the opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religiosity. We're in the business of giving ourselves away, expending ourselves. And that means that we have to be involved. So there's some significant, big implications for us today. And when I say today, I don't mean in the general sense of centuries. I mean actually today, in recent history, for us living here right now. So as you're listening to this sermon, I encourage you with me to take a minute to push pause because it is really important to think about this. If we want in any way to be true followers of Jesus, this is a tricky business. And there's a lot of opinions about what it means to be salt and light. But Jesus says it, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So, what does that mean in North America today, in Canada, in British Columbia, in your day-to-day life? And I want to suggest to you in this minute when we're pausing in this sermon, and you'll have to think about this, some of you will agree, some of you will disagree, some of you might even be mad about it, I don't know. But I want to suggest to you that we are living in the most dangerous, dangerous era for Christianity in North America in my lifetime. Maybe much longer than my lifetime, but for sure in the time that I'm aware of as a follower of Jesus. And not because of persecution, not because of values that are different, not because the world around us is putrefying. It always was, it always will. There's only one answer to that, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, where people understand they're living in a world and being people in a world that are filled with sin and need him as their redeemer. So I'm not talking about persecution, But I'm talking about the fact that in our world today, in recent history today, we have allowed Christianity to become something very different than what Jesus taught. We have allowed Christianity to represent something very different than what Jesus asked us to be. And not only are we allowing it to continue unchecked in our churches and in our lives, we are actually advocating for it. And in that sense, I think we are in a dangerous time for Christianity in North America. So, salt and light, what does that mean for us in real terms? Well, first, obviously, I think, it means that we have to commit ourselves to standing against negative effects of sin in our world. We have to say no to the sin that's there. And there are many, many things that are simply wrong, simply sin, simply disobedient to God, against what God taught, and they are not okay with God. There is no way around it, no pretty talk that makes it anything other than sin. And we have to be prepared to say when that's true, even if people don't like to hear it, even if they consider it intolerant. Helmut Thielicke again writes, some leaders think their goal is to be the honeypot of the world. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites. And the message of both the judgment and the grace of God has always been a biting thing. Rightfully, there's all kinds of things we talk about in our church where we talk about the need to make a difference in our culture. So things like values that are taught to our children. Things like the lives and the rights of the unborn. Things that are very significant. But there's many other places where salt and light are needed. Issues of human rights, of racial equality, of exploitation of the poor, of sexual slavery, of child abuse, of spousal abuse. There are no shortage of big-ticket items where salt and light are needed, and we're called to do something about it, to make a difference, to shine a light on it, to show the way, to rub some salt in and say, this isn't okay. Good news for us, is that within our larger family of churches, and your church, as part of that, we try and address some of those things. So we have things like WINGS, which is one of our agencies that has five homes for, our transition homes, for women who are fleeing domestic violence. We have Migrant Workers Ministry that helps hundreds and hundreds of migrant workers who come into our province, from primarily from Guatemala and Mexico, who need help. We have things like New Hope Community Services that houses refugees, and many of our churches, maybe even most of our churches, try and help refugees directly. We have Baptist Housing, which has 21 communities that are trying to create safe, caring environments for seniors through COVID. It's all kinds of things we're doing to try and make a difference in those areas, to be salt, to be light. But there's also bad news, and the bad news is that too often, in our world today, in the world in which we live, and even in our own churches, big religion in the name of Christianity has been used to justify the very things we're supposed to stand against. And we don't call it out. And we don't call it what it is, which is not what Jesus taught. We need to be careful of it. And we can't even leave it there. It gets way more personal. Way more personal, much closer to home. We're in our tax season. How many of us cheat on our taxes, don't report all the income? How many people watch pornography and contribute to the diminishing in the abuse of children and women? How many of us invest our money on high-return investments, RSPs, whatever it may be, in our various portfolios, whether or not the companies within them exploit the poor? Do we try to just skim by public health orders because we don't like them? Do we say we're working at home when really we're just taking a nap? We're taking way more time off. Salt and light, you see, when we're looking at this stuff and we start to say we're going to oppose evil and sin, it begins inside with true integrity in a world that sees so little of that true integrity. And then we have to have the courage to call it out when it's needed. We may or may not like it, but salt and light, when we stand For something and we stand against something is anything but grey. And it makes a difference. So we need to be committed to standing against the negative effects of sin in our world, and that starts within each one of us. It starts within me, it starts within you. The second thing we have to do is we have to commit ourselves to making a noticeable, positive difference in the world around us. We have to do something good. The most important of those things is the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ because, as I mentioned, it's the only thing in the end that turns the world around. It's the only thing in the end that saves us from the rot of sin is when we give our lives to Christ. So talking to people about it, proclaiming the Gospel, is at the absolute core of what Jesus teaches about here. But notice verse 16. He's going on, he's been talking about the light in the world, about not hiding your lamp, and he says, "...in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, which results in glorification of God. One of the problems we have, one of the great dangers in Christianity today, is that we look at the characteristics of the Beatitudes, these things I started reviewing at the beginning of chapter 5, where Jesus says, blessed are this. And Jesus says these things at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount on purpose. But we look at this list of things, and they are not the characteristics we love in our leaders. Poor in spirit, mourning their sin, meek, hunger, thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. We're not looking for that in our leaders. Those kind of people look weak. They look boring. They look listless. And instead, as Christians today, in our country, in North America, we have bought into a false belief that great leaders are potent purveyors of power. And the more potent you are, the stronger you are, the more aggressive you are, the more outspoken you are, the better you are as a leader. And it doesn't really matter who you truly are. It doesn't matter what you live like. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you treat people. It doesn't matter how often you lie as long as you can forward my agenda or what we perceive to be a Christian agenda. And there are great swaths of evangelicals, and let me risk offending you with it, there are millions of evangelicals in North America today who have subscribed to a Christian nationalist ideology that they hope will give them the power and the political power to assert their Christian rights. And if you haven't seen that in history in recent weeks, you should have. And it is the opposite of the teaching of Jesus. The opposite. And the result of that is that the light is no longer shining where non-believing world sees the good deeds that should lead to glorification of the Father, and nor do they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They instead are trying to create their own world through the use of, of power. So I hope, I pray, that for you, for all of our churches, that we were horrified to see Bibles, Jesus saves signs, prayer as part of the storming of the Capitol in Washington DC a few weeks ago. I hope we were horrified by that. More importantly, I hope that we understood the true horror and the danger of that were that people are co-opting the name of Jesus into the pursuit of power. They are using Jesus as their justification for the pursuit of power, however they get it. And when we start to do that, when evangelical Christianity, people who claim to be people of the word, followers of Jesus, start to do that, we are in grave danger of being conscripted into causes that have nothing to do with Jesus at all. And in the name of being salt and light, we've become anything but. We haven't just lost our way. We are on a completely different track. Tim Keller, conservative Christian leader in New York City, wrote in New Yorker magazine, there was a time when being an evangelical meant that we could claim the high moral ground. Now it is simply synonymous with the term hypocrite. That should scare us. The Sermon on the Mount is considered the highest example of ethical teaching in the world because it calls us to a life that is totally culture, or counter to our culture. It's not about our rights, and it never was. It's not about political power, and it never was. It was never about our ability to demand what we want through power. It is about being a disciple of Jesus, working from the heart out, demonstrating a servant attitude, loving people while still opposing evil. A heart that reflects the heart of Jesus, that can stand strong against the evil that we see, but does it out of a heart that cares for people, loves people, behaves a moral, upright, righteous life. Being salt and light begins with those heartfelt, heart-filled kinds of values. So the fact is the good fact is that most of our family of churches most of our people most of the people i interact with on a daily basis spend a lot of time asking how they can live for jesus how they can love people like jesus wants them to how they can serve people in the model that jesus demonstrated and i am deeply grateful that's true deeply grateful that that's true and a theme for our churches throughout this pandemic has been how can we make a difference in our community Even as public health orders seem to change, sometimes seem to be terribly inconsistent, still we look for the best way we can find to make a positive difference for the cause of Christ so that our good works would shine light into the darkness and bring glory to the Father. It's a thing to be proud of. That's a thing still to be careful about. We have all kinds of stories about how our churches have served towns and you can find those on our website you can find some of those on the website of individual fellowship pacific churches you can find some of those stories on the website of your own church this all being salt being light comes down to how you and i live every day every moment what we believe what we know god has called us to the opportunities for doing good during the pandemic are as wide as our imagination. And the fundamental question is not what do you deserve, what rights do we have, but how do we serve? How do we serve? And how do we speak the gospel through the good works of our life for the cause of Jesus? How do we live in a way that both confronts evil and does good, making a demonstrable difference, being salt, being light to the people around us? Jesus does speaks the Sermon of the Mount, he starts with that this is the character we have to have. But don't be confused. That's going to result in you being the salt of the earth. That's going to result in you being the light of the world. A few weekends ago, I was forced into watching a movie. Forced by which I mean my wife and son forced me to watch it with them. It was called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It was about Mr. Rogers and I had to get pulled into that room to watch that pretty much kicking and screaming because when I was growing up, this was the lamest, most inane and boring thing on television. I could not even imagine watching a movie about Mr. Rogers, listening to him play that little song, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. The whole idea of it made my brain start to have cramps. wanted nothing to do with it. Turns out it's a primarily true story, not entirely because it's a movie, about a fairly hard-hitting reporter in the movie. He was called Lloyd Vogel, real name was Tom Juno, who was forced to do kind of a puff piece on Mr. Rogers for Esquire magazine. Um, The reporter, Tom Juno, typically tore people apart in his expose kind of writing about people, saying what wasn't true, what they hadn't told you, all those kinds of things. Anyway, I started watching this movie, and it was ridiculous. Actually, quite absurd, and first while of watching it, I thought, no, I was right, I shouldn't have watched this. It's just painful to watch. Mr. Rogers, and it's portrayed as the most sincere and the nicest man alive. In fact, they say it repeatedly throughout the movie, I think he's the nicest person alive. The reporter who was writing for him didn't buy it at all because he never did. He started looking for the hidden secrets. So he'd ask him questions, trying to find out what is the secret thing underneath that you're not telling us that I can write about to do this expose on you, Mr. Rogers. So he'd start talking to him, you're very famous. You know, how do you feel about being famous? And Mr. Rogers says, fame is a four-letter word. And didn't want to talk about it. Say, I'm not famous. He would want wanted to go home with Mr. Rogers and just track what's actually going on in his life, so he did. Turns out Mr. Rogers didn't get a limousine back and forth to a movie studio. He took the subway every day with ordinary people, and he (laughs) took this ride with him on the subway, and people on the subway car with him started to sing, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Ridiculous, like I said. Eventually, he realized this might actually be who this guy is, and when the Esquire magazine article came out, it was entitled, Can You Say Hero? Not what I was expecting from a movie, and I wasn't expecting either to get kind of sucked into this movie. So while it was on, I actually Googled the article, Can You Say Hero from Esquire magazine to read the actual original story that this movie was based on. And I started reading this article and realized all of the events that are occurring, or most of the events that are occurring in this movie, are actually true events. And it might be that Mr. Rogers actually is the nicest man alive, or was in his time. So I started to Google it more and understand, try to figure out what's really going on with this. And it turned out Mr. Rogers was an actually ordained pastor, Presbyterian pastor, who is a deep, devout, devoted follower of Jesus Christ who tried to apply this kind of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount kind of teaching, to his life every single day. It was a bit startling to watch. It changed the movie. And I spent the next few days after watching this movie asking myself how I had got sucked into this cultural vortex where it was lame, it was insipid, it was gray to be poor in spirit, to mourn over sin, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker, to be persecuted for righteousness. How somehow I had no interest in looking at a documentary about a legitimately sincere, nice person who followed Jesus. That's the danger of our world today. It's the danger of how we are presenting Christianity to the world, and part of us, part of most of us, are buying that story. Jesus says, this is who you're called to be. And if you're this, then you will be salt and light. If you live this, your light will shine before others, they will see your good deeds, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven and your life will be anything but gray. Let's pray together as we come to the end of this. Father, I thank you for these words spoken so long ago, so famous around the world for people who um, are followers of you or not, Sermon on the Mount has changed lives for centuries and centuries. Father, we acknowledge to you today that it needs to change our life again. As many times as we've read it, as many times as we've thought of these words, I would pray that through your Spirit you would press into our hearts, our minds, into the way we see the world, into the things that we see in the world around us and understand your teaching and be able to separate it from what the world is selling that we might have bought, that we might have followed. Father, we confess that too often we look at these lists of characteristics and think of them as anything but strong. And again, we confess to you that in so doing, uh, we're following a path that isn't yours. So, Father, we want to be salt. We want to be light. We would ask that your spirit in our lives would give that salt, give that light to change and transform who we are, that we would be transformative to the world around us, to your glory, to your honor, and into eternity. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.